It occurs to me to explain to you um, some of the methodology I've been using relative to looking at the gospel. Whenever we speak of talking about Christ, we call it Christology, right? So that's the technical term for theology about Jesus, Christology, which, you know, biology, biosology, Christology, Christology. We know how that, you know, nomenclature works. But um, so when we talk about Christology, we can talk about having a high or a low Christology, okay? Now, all this means is that one might emphasize divinity high or they might emphasize humanity low. That's all it means. I've been uh, intentionally emphasizing a lower Christology uh, for a reason, because I think that in doing so, um, I'm trying to emphasize how this stuff really happened. Like, that's what we believe. The Gospels really happened. When we look at the Old Testament, you know, we have different types of literature, and we can say, well, this is figurative, or that's sort of a parable like Job, or, you know, it gets a little, perhaps a bit more confusing. But when we come to the New Testament, the literature changes significantly, and the Gospels read like people were there. And, you know, the letters of Paul and John are very... Uh, uh, didactic, right? They're very clear teaching. You know, the letter of St. Paul to the church, the Catholic church at Corinth, they're very instructive. Um, so this is why I'm doing it. The second thing I want you to recognize is that I'm, I have been teaching you a particular way of reading the scriptures. It's not the only way, but the way that I'm trying to teach you is to do two things. The first is we read what is there and we try to sort of impose humanity onto it so that it doesn't come off just like this fairy tale or story. But we really try to put ourselves into that as if we were there and we're seeing it happening, you know, to see the humanity of everyone involved. And then the second thing is to take that uh, understanding and apply it to our lives. How can that relate to us today? Okay, so with that in mind, now I'll do my homily. That's a long prelude. So here we have perhaps the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed. And it is the last miracle before his passion. News had gotten around about the blind man. Heard about him last week. News had gotten around. And um, now Jesus receives word that one of his best friends, Lazarus, is deathly ill. Come at once. Now, that's what we do when we hear our loved one is deathly ill. Our best friend or a family member, we come at once. We drop everything. What can I do? I want to be there. I want to, you know, be with my friend. I want to be at their bedside. I want to, you know... We're moved with compassion, as we ought to, and we run to their side. That's what you do. But then we're told, after Jesus heard that Lazarus was deathly ill, he stayed where he was for two days. That's really curious. And and the Gospels are clear that there are some people Jesus was closer to. Let's not forget the apostle whom Jesus loved. It's always important to point that out. 
John. <laughs> but, you know, so, so the scriptures are clear that, there, you know, he did have closer friends, and just like all of us, right? The very human reality, not everybody's our best friend, but these were his best friends, Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus. He receives word that Lazarus is dying, and he stays where he is for two days. Well, there's a reason. There's a reason. And we get to that. So he ends up finally going to, to where Lazarus is, and he arrives and finds out that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. And we have this very human reality of Martha coming to Jesus and, and greeting him or meeting him before he gets there and basically saying, and, and we hear it as, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But we need to feel that. Where were you? Where were you? He died. You healed the blind man. You, you could have, we, I know you could have done something because you could have done something. And you've done it for everyone else. All of these other people, some of whom you don't even know, Samaritans, etc. But for the one you love, your best friend, you couldn't be here. You, you weren't even here. Like you didn't, it's one thing to say you didn't even heal him. It's another thing that you weren't even here when he died. Where were you? How many times have we said that to God? Where were you? Where are you? What are you doing? And this is what Martha is saying. Now, Mary sat at home. I'm sure she was grieving, you know, and Martha is always the one to kind of speak up. And, and so we would expect it from her. We can, we can kind of get a sense of her personality from, from this and other, um, other examples in Scripture. And then, of course, Jesus says, well, you know your brother's going to rise. In other words, Jesus did not come to spare us from the grave. He did not come to spare us from suffering. Once in a while... He will perform a miracle, but by, miracles by their very nature and definition are rare. They don't happen that much. Jesus didn't come to spare us suffering. And it's, in this sense, very important that he allowed his best friend to suffer and die. But he does this for a reason, because he desires to, as, as God will do, he desires to manifest his power through weakness, his might through our suffering. And that's what happens. Now, Jesus, we're told, becomes perturbed and deeply troubled. So he's annoyed, but he's also troubled. Now, you can feel that, right? He's grieving too. He loves Lazarus. His best friend has died. His best friend died without him. He's feeling that. He's feeling all of that. It's not like he rises above that and there's no humanity here. No, there's humanity in Christ. Unified divinity and humanity. So he feels this loss of his best friend. But he's also perturbed at all these people saying, why weren't you here? You can imagine the eyes and the whispers and, and they were played out in the gospel not just from Martha, but from others. I mean, this is the guy who healed the blind man. He couldn't have even done anything for Lazarus. 
Where was he? The Lord is perturbed. He's annoyed, but he's also mourning, deeply grieving. And so we hear that he weeps. He comes to the tomb and he weeps because his friend has, in fact, died. And his friend felt or, or experienced that death without Jesus with him. So even though God is going to do something great, he still feels the suffering in us. It's really important. Even though he knows he's going to bring about something greater, he still hurts and is wounded, in a sense, in his, his humanity for the one he loves. And so finally, you know, he's like, take away the stone. She's like, it's one of my favorite lines of scripture. Surely there will be a stench. I quote it all the time. <laughs> you know, she's like, you can't take away the stone. He's decomposing, you know. A very real, real sort of response. Take away the stone. Move it away. And then he raises his eyes to heaven and he asks the Father to bestow that power upon him. And he cries out, Lazarus, come out. You can imagine everybody just looking at this open cave. And the man comes out wrapped in bandages and bound. And the Lord says, Untie him and let him go. You might say, what a great gift this was for Lazarus. Well, Lazarus would have to die again. It was a great act of God, a great miracle. And yes, a great gift, because how many of us would, you know, we think of people we lost too soon, or we even fear ourselves you know, it's one thing to live a long life. It's another thing to not. Nobody wants to die early. I don't know how old Lazarus was, but if they were best friends, presumably not that old. So it is a gift. It also might have been a curse because he had to live with his sisters. <laughs> and we're not really sure how that went. <laughs> You can imagine Lazarus saying, I was good four days. I was fine. And now I'm back. I got chores to do, get to work, etc." So, I mean, that's a reality. Now, when I read the scriptures um, in every Sunday and each mass, when I hear particularly the gospel, but not only, certain lines will stick out to me. And one of the things I learned, there's a certain type of prayer of reading the scriptures called Lexio Divina, and I'm not going to explain that to you today, but um, it basically has to do with reading the scriptures, and when something pops out, you reflect on that. You spend time on that. <clears throat> and what really sticks out to me really this weekend are these words at the end, untie him and let him go. Jesus did not spare Lazarus suffering and death, but he did bring him back and unbound him from death. The great desire of God is to enter into your life, 
enter into your suffering and even your sinfulness and unbind you and let you go. This is what he does. He, he will often let us stumble and fall, sin, or he will allow us to encounter suffering and victimization, horrible things, both decisions we make as well as other things done to us. He lets it happen. And like Martha, we often will cry out and say, where were you? Why weren't you here? It's a very human thing to say. And he can take it. He can take it. He can handle it. But at the same time, we have to trust that what he loves to do is make something great from it, from the weakness, from the suffering, from the sinfulness, from our failures, all of it. He loves to manifest his glory, his goodness, his power, his redemption through it to bring about something greater. So in these last days of Lent, there's so many, there's so much suffering just in this church. Every single person here has suffering, some of it profound. And it doesn't matter how, how old or young you are. You know, teenagers and, and younger, your suffering is real suffering. And it's going to be with you for a while. It doesn't just go away. It marks us. And all of us who are, who are older and have been through it, we know, yes, it's true. And even you little ones, the hardships you endure are real hardships for you. And we should never take that away. It's real stuff. And for all of us who, who've, you know, been through it a little bit longer, as, you know, depending on our age, there's so much suffering. There's so much sinfulness. There's so much we wish we wouldn't have done. Um, there's so much done to us that we cry out to God and wonder why it happened, on and on and on. Whether that's psychological suffering, emotional suffering, um, abuse or victimization, um, it could be relationship issues, it could be particular sins that we can't get rid of, that they just keep binding us. What God wants to do is he wants to do for you what he did for Lazarus. Unbind you and let you go. So consider then as we wind down Lent, what is that gift on Easter that you really want the Lord to unbind you from? Make that your request. Make that your prayer. Maybe it's a suffering no one else ever has known, but God knows, and you want to let that go. Ask his power. Ask him for his power to dwell within you for him to redeem you, for him to use his glory, goodness, and power and make it manifest in your life so that you can be unbound. He won't do it without your request. And indeed, he desires to do it for you. I now invite those to be received into our church, the elect, 
to come forward for their final scrutiny.